Welcome to Great Minds. And our guest today is the incredible Robert Barry. And Robert has been out front for some of the most iconic groups and supergroups of the last several decades. And is one of those guys who, when you add up the sum total of his career, which is very much still in the midst of, is just an unbelievable body of work. So Robert, it's great to have you here and I'm just flattered and honored to get a chance to talk to you. Well, I'm, I'm glad we connected. You know, we, we spoke a little bit when I was in Cabo last week and that we had a, a very good conversation that we didn't record because nobody needs to hear that stuff. But <laughs> well, that was the uh, that'll be for the exclusive after hours version. There you uh, go. You know, it's a, it's a exactly. It's a family <laughs> show. So, Robert, I, I, uh, John was great in giving me all kinds of background. And of course, our crack great minds research staff came up with some other stuff. And one of the things that struck me uh, was the acquisition of a recorder a four track, I believe, a TIAC when you were a very young guy. And I was not a musician, but I remember I had a Tanberg cassette, oh, yeah. cassette recorder. And, I recognize you know, that name. Playback. Yeah. And I think TIAC and Tanberg at that time, about the same timing, were two of the great, great brands of that time. But contrasted right. with me, I was just playing music. You took that TIAC four track and you created a 22 song rock opera. And I'd love to start our conversation back there and sort of go to the early, the formative years of Robert Berry. You know, it's a, it's a really good question because you know, as you're talking about that, I'm thinking, you know, my dad had a music store that had Vox guitars and amps. That's what the Beatles used. So when I was really young, besides having all these piano lessons, I'd hang out the store and all these guys, you know, it was a band called the Count Five that had a hit record here, uh, Psychotic Reaction. Syndicate of Sound had a hit record called Hey Little Girl. These guys come to my dad's store to see the amps the Beatles used. Whoa, we're going to try these Vox amps. And one of the bands was called Orphan Egg, and they actually entered the Vox Battle of Bands and won. And Orphan Egg, years later, uh, the drummer opened a music, or no, it was a, a tape store where he had all kinds of, uh, you know, eight track and four track tapes that he bootlegged, he'd make them. And he had TIAC cassette decks for cars and, and things. And so I knew this and I asked my dad, you know, George, you think that George would be able to get you one of those four tracks that just came out in, uh, I think I was in seventh or eighth grade. And he called up George who had won the battle of bands. Oh, I'd love, Mr. Barry, I'd love to do you a favor. I'll get one for your son got me this fortress. I haven't thought about that since you asked me. It is really um, another stroke of luck. My life is a long list of strokes of luck that this guy could get it for me for a price we could afford because they were about $800. And I think the wholesale was $425. So it was quite a difference. Amazing. And you start creating and writing an opera. Yeah. You know, it, and I had, been copying songs on a little stereo recorder trying to figure out how to get drum sounds and things and all of a sudden i have four tracks but then i realized well i could do three and stack all those onto the fourth track and have three more tracks so i was doing six sometimes 12 tracks of things and the rock opera um was just a bunch of songs about this kid in an orphanage that i thought would be kind of fun and I don't know why I did it. I just thought, well, I, yeah, I know why. The, the, the Who had put out Tommy a while back, and I always liked The Who in their lead. I thought, well, oh, that would be fun to do. So I, I mean, that's why I wrote this thing. But it, I took it to a local recording studio to have it run through some reverb at a real studio. And I wound up working at that studio after that, so a few years later. But um, it was, again, stroke of luck. So um, I'm talking to you now and you're in your studio, which is, you know, beyond state of the art. And you touched on working in a, in a recording studio, a sound studio. Yeah. And I sort of did the same thing in a different way. When I was about the same age as you, I wanted to be on the business side of the music business. And I thought, well, the way you learn that is to work in a record store. 
And uh-huh. so I worked on weekends when I had, a, I was already had my first uh, job after college, but on weekends, I worked at J&R Music World down on Lower Broadway selling records. Uh, and talk about, you know, working in a studio and how that sort of really accelerated you, you know, on a path forward as a musician. Well, you know, if you look at um, where I went, there was the biggest studio in San Jose was called Tiki. Grady O'Neill was the owner. When I was 12, the guys that had got me in their band that were seniors in high school made their first album at Tiki, actually first 45 at Tiki took me in there and Grady said, this song is really good, but it needs a little drum break. Just put this boom, boom, chat, right in the middle of it. And they went, oh, how cool, yeah. But on top of that, to lead it back in, we need a little organ riff. And I, cause I was the keyboard player in that band at 12 years old and they were 18, right? And I, like a deer in the headlights, said, a keyboard riff, uh, what, 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 what would I do, you know? And he looks at me and goes, just like, you know, play, and I went, and he said that's it and right there the switch went oh that's how you create stuff that's original because you think about it you try to work it out and it was so easy i thought (laughs) it was the turning point in me doing starting to do right songs and being more original back at 13 years old probably then and leading toward the rock opera when i got the four track but learning so much at home from Grady sparking me that when I took it back to his studio to have the rock opera put through real reverb, he goes, where'd you record this? I said, in my parents' garage on a four track. And he, yeah, I could tell he was thinking, this sounds as good as what we do here with the big equipment, right? He goes, yeah, you ought to hang around a little bit, you know? And I started hanging around. I had a Mellotron, which was a keyboard that was like a sampler. It had violins on every note. It was a recording of violin player or choir, oh, that kind of stuff. Moody Blues used it. He started hiring him out to sessions to do strings and choir and stuff on these sessions. I started engineering at the same time. And all of a sudden, I was the main engineer at Tiki Sound at 20 years old, 21 years old. And it was the biggest studio. The cool thing was they did mostly country music, did a lot of Mexican music, mariachi, all the mariachi bands came there. And then the odd Hawaiian or folk thing. They didn't do a lot of rock and roll, but I had a rock and roll band playing all over the place. So little by little, all the local rock bands started coming in. It gave me, I, I call it my toolbox. My toolbox kept getting filled with bigger tools, you know, I, I learned how to play Nashville acoustic guitar really nice and even and bright and how they did it to get that country sound. I learned how to play chicken picking. It was great stuff, right? The toolbox, one of the toolbox. I learned how to do record mariachi music. And the funny thing was that the first one that Grady let me do by myself, and you know mariachi, they have like two trumpets, three violins. I mean, it's a big band, really. You know, I decided to get my tuner out and tune them. Tune the violins, tune the trumpets. Everybody's perfect, the guitarone, the big bass, tune, per- oh my God. We got done and they left and Grady said, that is the best mariachi session I've ever heard. You really, you nailed that. Oh, they sounded so great. The next day they came and asked for their money back because I had tuned them, it was in tune. And I took the culture right out of it and that was a huge lesson that went in my toolbox too. You know, it doesn't have to be in tune to be right. It doesn't have to be perfectly in time. It has to be real, whatever that organic piece is. So my toolbox kept getting full, full, full. And I was playing, I started touring my band Hush in college. I had a little record contract. Um, I got through Grady. We were doing sound alikes, which were illegal now, I think, but on Elton John's Yellow Brick Road, on Deep Purple's uh, Burn and John Denver. Um, well, I forget the name of the album, but I had to do sound alikes at Tiki on these albums. And they would put like a tribute to Elton John, Yellow Brick Road and sell it in Taiwan with the Elton John cover on it. I didn't know this at the time. I found this out afterwards, but some shyster was selling these bootlegs and making money on it. It was me. 
which sounded nothing like Elton John, but you know, we thought it did at the time. But again, all those great piano riffs, all those drum things, I was playing all the instruments on these albums. I learned how Nigel, uh, is Nigel Olson the drummer from Elton John? And the, so. doom, the big yeah. drum rolls and Elton John's piano. And I had to learn all this stuff and recreate it. And then the toolbox, there it went. Right? It, the experience was incredible all through Grady O'Neill at Tiki Sound. And I can't say enough about that experience. Who gets that gift, you know? Amazing foundation. And you start to see between Tiki and, you know, growing up, your dad, you know, Fox, how yeah. it all starts to build a, a foundation. Talk a little bit more about Hush, because that was quite a first band. Who holds the light? Here's It was interesting. I had a band, I was in college, then I had a band that played sort of cover tunes at the local clubs and stuff, and I wanted to buy a BMW. So I played three, four nights a week, went to college during the day, and I'd go to Tiki on the other times. And we had this band and another couple of guys had this other band in the booking agency here in town, which is the agency where the manager of Stevie Nicks and uh, the boyfriend, the husband, I mean, what's his name? <laughs> I, right. I can John, only think of Stevie Nicks. Right. John McVeigh. <laughs> Lindsey Buckingham. Lindsey Buckingham, right. That was how, how beautiful Stevie Nicks comment anyway, <laughs> even right. at her old age. Right. Um, but that agency saw these two bands and said, you know, those two guys and these two guys, that would make a hell of a local band. And they got together for a meeting. And we really liked each other, got together in my mom and dad's garage while you did my rock opera. We hit it off and they were having a showcase for all their acts for the high school, college and teen club kind of dances they had a lot then, the late 70s, early 80s. And we had to put together, a, I think it was 10 minutes set. And I had an idea to do all the choruses of like six or eight songs instead of doing three full songs so we learned a doobie brothers chorus you know listen to the music we learned elton john yellow brick road chorus uh knights and white satin chorus we hooked all these choruses together no band had ever done it here and we got every gig that was available at that showcase the agent said see i told you'd be great but i didn't realize you'd take all the, the jobs the, the schools loved you they booked us and we had six or eight choruses of songs and in two months we had to play our first gig we didn't have any song we didn't know any songs we only knew the choruses to six or eight songs right because we linked them together we didn't have time to really learn the whole song so we had to get a two-hour set together of music and it was cover tunes to start with the guitar player at the time said why don't we call the band hush we had done hush by deep purple at that showcase he goes that'd be a good name I said well we all said hey hush okay Six months later, that guitar player left. We are becoming too popular and too heavy for him. Already, we are writing and doing a couple of Yes songs and different things that were really spectacular. Led Zeppelin, you know, um, Stairway to Heaven was one of the cover tunes, but they were intricate. And we were pulling it off because all the guys in the band were good. We auditioned guitar players. Every guitar player in San Jose area here, Silicon Valley, wanted to play with us. 20 guys later, we picked Paul Keller, who's still with me today, playing on my tours and doing all the stuff I do. And Hush had a really good eight to 10 year run of high school, college cover band, college original band, uh, record company signed us out of Minneapolis. We played Winterland with Rush. We did, we opened for Triumph on tour. We did all these things that a local band would love to do except we didn't really have we are the south bay in california here san francisco is the north bay if we would have been in the north bay we would have had a couple of mentors like sammy hagar or carlos santana that we could have learned from we didn't have that down here and we just never quite got i don't know whatever that next step was that intangible untangible next step and, and that part of you that was a record producer continues to grow too and yeah. you build an open sound tech 
I tried to become a partner in Tiki and they wouldn't hear of it. And that was okay. I understand. I don't want any partners at SoundTech either now, except for my son, maybe, you know, but um, I was running it. I was doing everything there. And I, I was even ordering the new equipment and all the new things that were happening. I just was thirsty to learn and all the equipment and everything. So I pretty much drove it to the next level of Tiki. And I thought, well, if I'm going to keep doing this, I want to be part of it. And in hindsight, I could see that wasn't even a, a, a kind request for me to make. That was their place. I opened my own place. We bought, Grady's still a, one of the best friends, like a father to me. Um, we still get along. The, the competition has been no problem. Uh, Sound tech has thrived since day one. I'm trying to figure out how to not have so much business actually, because my personal career has expanded so much in the last couple of years that I just can't serve the client base as much as I used to be able to, you know? So anyway, it's, it's sound tech has done great. I have, like you say, the best of everything. This board behind me is a 1974 Neve console. It's been my dream. I've had it a year now. The old console was great. The old console was newer than this one. This is the Holy Grail. This is like what Dave Grohl took out of Sound City in that documentary. It's much smaller than the one he got, but that's the Holy Grail, right? So, and everything, I showed you my guitar room, the, the, the best of everything, the microphones, telefunkens, all that stuff. I strive to get the best equipment for myself and then I use it for the client's sound tech. So yeah, the production thing has been rewarding but so is the live playing and releasing albums. I have to do it all. You know, just, I have to, I love it. You can tell I'm still excited talking to you about it. It's, right? it's, it's so great. And it's so genuine. I'm going to talk about uh, live and, and your incredible solo albums and some of the people that you've worked with, but let's stay where we are for a second. You mentioned yeah. a Neve board and Rupert, mm. Rupert Neve is one of the great minds of American music of American culture. Talk about the Neve legacy a little bit more, how important it is in music. And one of the things I love to talk about, Robert, also is the great studios of our country are incredible. When you think of what's come out of Muscle Shoals, when you think about, I had Marshall Chess on Great Minds. We had a wonderful conversation and he was talking about chess and how you know, mm -hmm. all this, all the stones wanted to do was go to Chicago and try to get that, that sound. And we had Steve, yeah. Crop, we had Steve Cropper on great minds and talked a lot about stacks and the stack studios. Talk about Rupert Neve and about that American unique legacy of these special, special places that record the music we all know and love. You, you know, that's a really good question because what makes Neve more special than any other what, what makes it the Holy Grail? There's API, which is the Holy Grail in certain people's minds, but still Neve is the one. And, you know, I used to have an Ampex recorder and the two inch tape and everything in Ampex. The reason it sounded so good, like the Studer stuff out of Germany, they're like military grade, you know, all the windings, the wire, the metal, everything about it is way overbuilt. Well, Neve was, I mean, <laughs> to bring my console over to a third of the side of, of Dave Gruel's, it took four of us guys, and it's small. It weighs an immense amount. The metal itself that it's in is heavy. Uh, the modules, I can take them out. I'll show you one. <laughs> I'm going to grab this. Watch this. That's an EQ module. This, I mean, it's 10 pounds anyway. In my old board, you take the EQ module out and it was a pound and a half. And it, it was a Neotech. It was a great board and it served me well for 30 years. But this thing is so heavy. And what's inside of these components is so amazing um, that it just doesn't get better. Plus, I think there's something to do with the components, uh, the transformers, all the things that maybe there's some parts that aren't available now titanium you know what what a kryptonite so who knows what it is but right right different now you can't but, quite get it even if they make them exactly the same and i can't tell you why rupert neve 
designed things the way he did and they sounded the way they did, but they can't seem to copy it, even if they make it exactly the same. So there's some kind of magic there and there's a time and place. It's sort of like why do Beatles records sound so good still? Well, the recording equipment is part of it, but the Rickenbacker guitars, the Vox amps, the towels on the drums and the Hofner bass, they all make a thing that is more modern sounding than the Beach Boys, let's say, you know, the surf music. It's just a thing that place and time and the way it was done. I wish I could explain it better than that, but this has been my dream, you know, and I been working toward it for a long time it's a very expensive console to buy the old one the new ones are much you know, i get, could have bought one for sixty thousand that was you know from 10 years ago or something but no i had to go back to 74 and get a really expensive one um really great stuff it's the same with the tube gear i have why does the tube gear the old stuff have this sound when they make new tube gear there's some com- components that I, maybe it's cancer causing. <laughs> I don't know. Why can't they use you know, Let's a hope certain not. tin foil around the capacitors? Why can't they have the same thing? I don't know. But amazing. But so you, you cannot beat that equipment. And, and the legacy of what's been produced with that gear out of all these great studios across the country, yeah. very, very special in the history of American music. Yeah. And maybe we've been groomed. Uh, and our, the physical properties of our hearing, like this warmth and this fatness of a Neve console over something like, uh, like MCI was a big console, so it's sort of bright, and AMAC was a Rupert Nevis, it was bright and, and it was thinner, you know? That's not our favorite sound. Sort of like a transistorized guitar amp next to a tube guitar amp. We like the tube sound, you know? Anyway. That, amazing, amazing. That was something um, that it's hard to explain, but you, you can understand why the the richness of it is so great yeah Um, it's great great uh conversation i'm glad we went there so let's start talking about some of the sexy stuff and the incredible path that your career has taken and i'm not going to get it all exactly right i want to hear it from you but you mentioned sammy hagar earlier i know there's a lot of ties back to him of course ties to carl palmer um but let's talk about and we can go anywhere you want robert we can go to okay. G- go to gtr i'll go wherever you want to go but let's start talk about you know sort of post hush and an incredible career um again still very much in the midst of you know i it's steps of being in the right place or being lucky um i never pursued any of those positions with famous bands and stuff but i wound up being in the right place to be able to take on those positions like with steve howe carl had called me because he heard my cassette tape at geffen records and they're having a little bit of trouble with john wetton in asia and they either wanted to put somebody new in or carl wanted to start a new band and carl liked the cassette tape now, of course i was sending things around record companies and my friend who, who does a lot for me was sending things around record companies to see if I could get a record contract. Cause I wanted my band to get signed the Robert Berry band. I want to get a record deal. Right. But I never expected to land in the lap of Carl Palmer with my cassette tape for him to call me right here at the studio where we're talking now and say, I like it. And uh, let's start a new band. What happened was we tried, we couldn't find the right people. I was in London we were working with some guy there and that, you know, it, it wasn't bad. It just wasn't, the magic wasn't there. And Steve Hackett left Steve Howe of GTR and my manager over there said, Steve needs a guitar player, a keyboard player. What do you think you want to meet? He likes your cassette tape. right place the right time i guess the right skill level because usually i get brought in as that missing piece instrument wise but really a songwriter too and steve uh, had me co-writing songs with him and it was a great experience it was my first 
here's the strange part for me. I, I didn't think about this until this time of my life. I got this break with Steve Howe. Steve told me this is the best co-writing I've ever had anybody do with me besides John Anderson of Yes. That was a thrill for me for him to say that. We did a lot together. The singer in that band didn't like it. I was the new American guy. Spent his time with Steve Howe's writing. I wanted to sing, you know, and I was willing to give up singing lead to sing background and stuff, but he made my life miserable. So here's a guy with no international, no big career, no uh, hit record, nothing, me, I quit. I said to myself at that time, I know there's something better for me. I don't want to live my life in a bad marriage, let's say, let's say you know. Why I felt strong enough to do that in my, my goals, I don't know. But that was a real change for me to say, you know what? I don't ever want to live my life with a black cloud hanging over me. And I wish I knew what brought that to me. But again, luck, kind of like Grady, luck. I mean, you know, to wind up a tiki, oh my God. This thing was luck because the manager, Brian Lane, was very mad at me. I quit. I told, gave Steve Howe a letter. Hey, I'm leaving. You, know, you have the songs. You have the budget. The record company likes it. I'm leaving. I, I can't live my life like this. Manager's mad at me on a Sunday. Calls me on Monday. I know we're flying you back home on Wednesday. Keith Emerson wants to have lunch on Tuesday. Right place, right time, right skill set. And you know, because we know each other a bit now, you know I worked really hard to, to do what I love. It wasn't like work, but the engineering, the songwriting, the playing all instruments, singing. I worked really hard on all those because I did it for me because I loved doing it in my mom's garage on the four track. It's just something I loved. I couldn't help it. I still can't help it. If I could come in here instead of going out, it's my wife's birthday. If I could come in and record a song tonight, I would do it. Don't say a word. <laughs> not, not a word. No one will ever hear that. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, but so that led me to Keith Emerson. And I will say for the first time in my life, I was a little nervous to meet a famous musician because I thought he'd be like Einstein. You know, no complete sentences, talking musical equations. I'd never be able to keep up with him. He was as comfortable as you and I when, when we speak. He was such an easygoing guy, funny, you know. And we had this lunch and we decided to start this band. And I like your cassette tape, he said. Carl played me your cassette tape. I went, what the hell? You know, I, I will tell you, I learned another lesson. And I'm going back a little bit. At the end of Hush, there was nowhere to go, really. Um, we had done our thing. We won a music award here. We had a little record contract. It just wasn't going to work. I broke it up. But a record pressing plant in Taiwan wanted my vinyl pressing thing through Soundtech Studios. And I couldn't use a client's music. So I took all these songs I written during Hush that Hush could never do. They weren't good enough. They were too, they had more groove. They were, ah, they were just different. You know, I didn't think twice about them. And I put this real, real tape together, 10 songs, and I sent it off to the pressing plant to get pressed just to try their product. It came back. My guitar player in the Robert Berry band, Rob Fowler, sent it off to all the managers, all the record companies. Herbie Herbert, Journey's, Journey's manager, liked it, became my manager for a year. Geffen Records liked it, got it to Carl Palmer. I mean, all these songs, they were too personal and stuff I would never do in front of people, right? Another lesson, wow, it, when I write from my heart and what matters and what I feel, no matter what, if it's super personal or just something I see, that makes a difference instead of writing about a tree or a shortage of toilet paper or whatever, you know, <laughs> right. or writing a song about the COVID, the coronavirus. Nobody wants to hear that, right? We hear enough of that. I have to write something that means, I, I was going to tell you this guy, this fan of mine, posted the, the worst thing about his son today and it, it made me start to write some lyrics and stuff i won't tell you it's about but it was really hit me deeply those are the kind of things that all of a sudden were getting attention and a radio station started playing one of the songs off that album of songs i would never ever put in an album where they wouldn't play hush so it had to be real it had to be more organic you know what do i feel so all this was going around the country and on the world now and 
I was starting to get connected with people like Keith Emerson. It's amazing. And you mentioned Steve Howe and, and referred to Yes, and of course, Emerson, Lake and Palmer. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, incredibly important groups in the history of rock and roll still in various configurations today. I think when we spoke last week, I mentioned I had ran into um, John Anderson and Trevor Rabin and Rick Wakeman in, right. to in Tokyo last yeah. trip over there in 2019 and still performing incredible audiences. You end up, I'm not going to call you a swing player, but you end up as sort of a seminal figure in a number of supergroups. Um, and there's sort of almost a fraternity of musicians, Night Ranger, Sammy Hagar, so many other great bands. And you end up in another supergroup, um, Alliance, which I'd love to talk about. You've gotten to play with some amazing people and been a collaborator and a lead collaborator with some amazing people. Well, that's the fun part of it. You know, that I learned with Steve Howe, if I give 110% of who I am and the way I do it, and also be a good team player at the same time, I, I can give you 110%, and if you only use 50% of it, you only use 20%, I'm okay with that. But let me give you 110%. Steve Howe let me do that. And he took and we worked and we juggled this thing into these great songs. That's been sort of the thing with me. Uh, I have a lot of ideas. I cover a lot of bases. I, I can engineer an album for anybody. I, you know, Paul McCartney wants me an engineer. I can cover it, right? I mean, tell you, Mick Jagger, I can cover it. I know what I'm doing. If they need to sit down, they're missing a song lyric. I can throw out five things that maybe I don't even like, but I can I can throw them out because I'm sort of a, a flow thinker, a flow writer. I can just throw things out and that makes things happen. You know, that's what happens with Gary Peel for Alliance, guitar player from Boston, right? We just work all the time on whatever comes out and it comes out a lot. So and I'm sort of a utility guy, you know? If I don't know how to fix an amplifier, but I know what amplifier sounds best for the guitar player, what they like. I play drums. I know what kind of drum heads that the guy says, oh, my drums don't sound right. Oh, my. I know what kind of heads, maybe even what kind of sticks, how we should tune them. Yeah, I'm the utility guy. <laughs> and, and what about Ambrosia, another incredible super group? That was an, an interesting thing because I didn't know at the point I joined them that I could sing, make a wish, baby. I didn't know I could sing like that, right? And here I'm singing this blue-eyed soul stuff. I joined them because Hush used to open for them. They were a progressive band, you know, Life Beyond LA, nice, nice, very nice. And Hush was a progressive band, so we'd play with them. But then this blue-eyed soul thing, um, I had done it in the studio, but never on stage. And when I got with them, I'm like, wow, I like this. This is really fun to do, along with the nice, nice, very nice, and all the more musical things they did, too. One of my things uh, in my life is I don't want to rest on anything from yesterday. What are we going to do tomorrow to be successful? We need to be playing gigs. We need to put out a new album. If people buy it or not, we need to stay viable. I couldn't get Ambrosia to do a new album. The three of us had studios at least my version of Ambrosia. That was a couple of years. Great band, great, oh, one of the greatest times of my life working with top musicians. I got four, I'm singing lead, and there's four part harmony behind me. It's like, oh, the sound was amazing. But they wouldn't commit to doing a new album. And I finally said, I gotta go. I, I don't wanna stop 
even if nobody buys my next album, I don't want to stop. So that was unfortunate, sort of like the Steve Howe thing, very unfortunate. I wish I would have stayed with Steve. Um, but, you know, I, what am I going to do tomorrow? Exactly. Right? exactly. And along that pathway, you come in and out with another great band, The Tubes, and also strike up a partnership with Greg Kinn. Yeah, the tubes is interesting because I have a band called December People, which I think you're aware of, that does the holiday mashup music. Right. There's four or five albums of that. It's for charity. Um, I think it's one of the best things I ever could do. It's one of the best bands because all these guys are great. But the keyboard player plays in the tubes. Dave Med, great keyboard player. He sings the high vocals. Oh my God, he's way up there, right? Um, he gets really sick. He, he also is a contractor. He's doing some work and he got a piece of metal in his elbow he didn't know about. It got infected, went to his heart. He calls me in the hospital. He goes, I almost died last weekend. What? Yeah, it was that bad. What? Yeah, he goes, I got a this on a Monday. He calls me, I got a gig with the tubes in New York on Friday. You got to do it for me. I said, oh, I don't think so, Dave. I said, come on, you sound like you're okay. Yeah, but honestly, I'm just out of the woods right now, but they won't let me out of the hospital. I said, well, I can't play keyboards and sing like you sing in the tubes. I, I got to learn it. And Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, fly out. I have to fly out Thursday. We play Friday. I can't do it. You got to do it, man. It's computerized rig. It's really complicated. You're the only, you know, Pro Tools. I said, I'll tell you what, I'll come and see you tomorrow. We'll see how you're doing. You know, we'll talk about it then. This Monday, it's going to be a Tuesday. And I went there and sure enough, he was still really sick. He looked bad. And I said, I don't know if I could learn it all. You can do it. You please, you got to do it. So I take the gig. I have three days. His keyboards are delivered to the studio. Total mess. I don't know what to do with these keyboards. Because I'm not really a keyboard player in a band anymore. I'm playing bass and singing. I'm, be, I'm staying now. Paul McCartney now. That's what I like to do, you know. And I figure out how to reprogram his keyboards, get all the sounds. I learn the songs, make a few charts. And the guitar player, Roger Steen, calls. And this is Roger, I hear you're taking Dave's gig Friday. And he's not happy, right? He goes, um, let's get together, rehearse on Thursday. I said, Roger, I said, I've started working on it. I said, if I rehearse, if you tell me anything, it'll go out. I, I, I'm, I'm putting in the, the memory banks. I have three days to do this. I, I just can't rehearse. And he goes, well, I usually have more control of our, the tube's music. I'm the musical director. I said, this, this, you'll love this. I said, Roger, I played with Keith Emerson. I can do this. Just trust me. And he said, okay. Great. Now, come on. That gives me chills right now still. That, what Keith Emerson did for my life, you know. Uh, but I did learn it. We got on the airplane. I said, look, I'm only going to do this if I could bring my wife, Rebecca, because we're playing Niagara Falls. And they said, okay, you pay for it. Then. I'm doing you a favor. You can't even give me a plane ticket. Okay, I'll pay for it. We get in the plane and they're all sitting together and they, they just give me one of these. Right? Because I wouldn't rehearse and they weren't happy about this at all. They figured they just had to turn me down and power through. We get there and I'm still adjusting things in the sound check and they're not really happy. But they said, all right, see you back in a couple hours for the show. I could tell they're just not convinced I could pull this off. And I'm, I'm having to sing... Uh, talk to you later and uh they've had some really she, she wanted a million girl the high part right well i'm playing these things i barely know so the, the sound check wasn't good second song during the show both roger and fee the singer turn around to do this you know awesome. and awesome. it was such a wonderful experience we end with white punks on dope before the encore where fee dresses up in the spandex and these high heels are this big and he has the wig and he acts like he's on drugs and he falls on the ground he's all sweaty and we go off stage and fee and i go this way and the rest of the band goes that way and there's fee you know and he's seven feet tall in those heels that he wears for that that part and he's shirtless and he's all sweaty and i said fee that was amazing doing that with you guys and he gives me a big hug like this into his sweaty, hairy chest. And I said, hold on a second. I get my phone and I take a picture of her. I said, I'll <laughs> always remember that. <laughs> oh it was such a cool experience. They're such a great band. I, 
cemented a relationship with Roger Steen where I produce, or I, he really produces them, but I engineer and work with him personally on his solo albums. from that get-together. And, and you mentioned it, but let's go a little deeper on yeah. what you created uh, with December People. And you've raised a ton of money for community food banks, but talk a little bit more about that project, which is, again brings all kinds of talent from many of the bands that you've been in or you know, friends of friends. And yeah. I, I'd love to hear more about, about what you created with December People. First of all, the Gary Peel from the band Boston, is a guitar player, uh, Jack Foster, who does, uh, he's an international artist, so he does his albums here, is a guitar player, Dave Med from the Tubes, the keyboard player. We started with Mike Vandy, who was a drummer for YNT, and the YNT kept ramping up, so we wound up going with Sammy's drummer, David Lauser, and myself, and it's really a great band, and we mash up um, Santa Claus is Coming to Town with ZZ Top LaGrange. Oh, oh, oh. Better watch out, better not, right? The beauty of it is when I work these arrangements out, they have to fit like a glove. You have to think that uh, Tom Penny's uh, running on a dream could have been Silver Bells because it fits so well. You think that could have been the hit song. But we're really doing the holiday song. But it seems like it's Tom Petty over you. How do you mash them together? When we get that combination together, it becomes an album. We have four albums like that. We do it for food banks and um, homeless shelters. We think that every city or town, small area, could take care of their own. We could probably stamp that out if it was just some way mandated by a local government. Hey, we have in our little town in Kansas, we have, you know, a thousand homeless people. We should be able to take care of that. Or we have 5,000. We should be able to take care of that. We don't think the federal government can take care of all the homeless and the hungry in, in the world because they just don't see it enough. And here in my in Silicon Valley, we have these tense cities and stuff. It's awful. Yeah. We are the sixth largest economy in the world in Silicon Valley. That means we're probably larger than the economy of Italy. And we have homeless encampments here. Why they can't take care of it? I don't know. I know it's a big problem, but it sh we should be able to take care of our weakest citizens, right? So we feel that if we can get out, do this for charity, give, you know, we have albums you can buy and take home and play, unlike Trans Siberian, who's these wild progressive rock stories and all these things you might put in the background. Ours is like a comedy routine, you know, stay with a heaven like uh, Night Before Christmas, all these things. We have really fun albums. People get the joke when they see us play. We bring the right message to people about the homeless and the hungry. The only thing I can't find, I cannot find the right manager or the right booking agency to break us bigger than the eight to 10 gigs we do each year. I, I've had two managers not powerful enough to make that happen. And if you've heard the albums, you know it's a shoe in when we play places go crazy because it's so much fun and you can sing along with jingle bells and it start it's hot for teacher jingle bells you can sing it and here you're singing the van halen hot for teacher beating and stuff but you're singing jingle bells because you know it it's fun it's you get the joke and every year we come out with a couple new songs for the show like we started last time with uh in the air tonight phil collins how the drum machine starts and we did we three kings it's all dark and then bah, 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 the big drum roll of that song, We Three Kings, it was, their audience stood up, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's so much fun. Amazing. So I love it. Um, I think it's one of the best things I could ever do in my life. I just have to find that manager or that booking agency that says, we can do what Trans-Siberian, we could do what Mannheim Steamroller does, what Brian Setzer, we could do this. And I haven't found it. Been 10 years. I still haven't got the right connection. Uh, I'd stay at it because it's such a worthwhile project. And, yeah. and you are right. We, we should be able to do better as a society for our weakest. Yeah. Oh, God,
So we touched on it before, but I don't want to forget to go back to Greg Kinn, who I, I know has also been a big part of your life. I've been with Greg about 15 years. I mean, I've known him forever around here. Greg had the biggest radio show we've ever had in Silicon Valley, in the, in the Bay Area. It was a morning show. He had to get up at 4.30 in the morning and drive an hour and a half from where he lives to get into KFOX radio here. And his sidekick, Chris Jackson, is a little more liberal, and Greg's a little more conservative. And they, Greg would say these things, and Chris would jump all over him. It was a great show in the morning. Greg would talk about touring with the Stones. I mean, he has stories that you wouldn't believe about things. And he's like your grandfather. He likes to tell these stories, and you can't stop them. Great radio show. And he'd have guests on famous guys, stuff that a lot of guys couldn't do, except for there are a few shows, Alice Cooper and stuff, I guess, still has one. You know, they have those Sammy has a TV show, that kind of thing. His bass player, uh, Steve, had a stroke, couldn't play anymore. And that was his co-writing partner on Jeopardy and a breakup song. Greg calls me on the radio. And this is after I left Ambrosia because I couldn't get him to do a new album. And I thought, well, that's pretty much it for me, I guess. You know, I don't know. How am I going to find anything worthy? I don't want to really have another local band. I don't want to play wineries. I don't, I don't want to. I get this call 8.30 in the morning. Hey, Robert's Greg Ken. Hey, Greg, how you doing? Aren't you on the air? Uh, yeah, I am. I, I wanted to ask you something. Yeah, okay. I'm, I'm half asleep. But go ahead. He goes, want to be in the band? <laughs> what? And I didn't hesitate. I said, yes. Because he's a lot of fun anyway, you know, and I've been with him ever since. Usually we're together every Thursday. We do four hours every Thursday, writing, recording demos for the new album, whatever it's going to be. We come up with 20 or 30 songs before we pick 10 or 12 that are going to be on the album. And again, he's prolific. I'm prolific. We it's like sparks fly in here. We get a, every time he comes in, we get a new song. It might be lousy, but we get one. Right. And then we get a gem every third or fourth song. So it's a lot of fun. We're starting to play again. I think we're in Buffalo, New York on the, in October or something. We're doing something here. Greg Ken and I do a storyteller show, which is like his radio show. It's just the two of us acoustically. It's tremendous. I mean, he has stories about Mick Jagger giving him a pack of cigarettes. I mean, that close up to these stars, you know, opening for Queen, uh, we had something called the Kinsert here. Last time I saw Steve Howe, we played before Yes, because Greg put on this huge concert through the radio station, and the headliners would be Kansas, Yes, uh, whoever, the, the, the biggest names of the 80s rock kind of thing. And it's just been a great experience for me. And it's so easy for me because this music's simple. And I like that simple kind of you know, new wave, garage rock, whatever you want to call him that the balance with my progressive career with the things I was doing at Keith Emerson and everything is really kind of cool. I could do simple kind of stuff, just having fun, or I can really get down and deep as a musician and a songwriter on the 3.2 stuff. So it's been a great balance for me besides the studio. about 3.2 you took me exactly where i wanted to go because while you're you know weaving in and out of all these incredible super groups and working with you know the, the greg kins you're also recording your own solo stuff and still doing that today yeah yeah I'd... i was very fortunate that a record company in 2015 i believe it was i don't like I say, I don't, I never look back. I'm always looking forward. So dates or that years are hard for me, but I uh, wanted to put out a live three album from Boston in 1988. So 2015, 2016, it came out. Keith had left the band three, which Keith Emerson called Palmer myself had in 87, 88. He left it behind because he got criticized for doing songs like Carl did in Asia. They didn't criticize Carl, but they criticized Keith. He, he didn't enjoy criticism too much. So he just left it behind. But 
27 years later, a company's putting out a live album. Keith signs up because hey, I'll be at the check or go in the bank. I need the money, you know, no big deal. Well, it showed up on his doorstep. Like he always liked to do, sit back, the glass of wine, listen to music. He thought, well, tonight I'll put on this three thing and see, you know, I don't know, a long time ago. He was amazed at how good we are. Amazed how good the album sounded. Amazed at the audience response. Amazed at every his own playing because we played things a little too fast. We were having so much fun. Everything's fast and Carl was everything. Oh, it was great. He called me immediately and said, Robert, I just listened to the album, the live album. We were really a good band. He's so excited. And I said, well, I always thought we were, Keith. I would never bring it up to him. Uh, record company wanted me to do a follow-up three album, but I wouldn't bring it up to Keith because I knew he left it behind. I didn't want to ruin our friendship by doing what I felt would be imposing on the friendship. Say, hey, let's do an album. I want let's do I did a lot of things with him, but not a three album. There was the point for me to say, what do you think about doing a follow-up 27 years later? And he said, maybe. I said, hey, let me call this record company in Italy that's been really bugging me for 10 years to do one. They really want this. I'll see what they offer. Called them, called Keith back. I said, I got this much money, complete artistic control, and a year to do it. He goes, who has that kind of money? I said, you're Keith Emerson. They want this album. Yeah, he goes, nobody cares anymore. I said, well, these guys care. And they're Frontiers Records. They're one of the biggest we have now. They have everybody from the 80s and even the 90s. They put out everything. They're, put, they're just really doing great. He goes, okay. They said, well, let me call him back. So you, you think it's okay. I call him back. And for some reason, when he said nobody cares anymore, it really hit me in the heart and the mind. Now, that's all he said. But when I called him back, I said, uh, well, Keith will do it, but he wants another 10 grand on top of what you've already offered him, <laughs> which he didn't say, but I was going to prove to him, right, that people care. They said, let's do it. Called Keith back. Hey, we're on. Plus, I got you another 10 grand. He goes, what? I said, you're Keith Emerson. What do you mean, what? He goes, so we started working. And we decided, we had a bunch of parameters we laid out. What do we do right? What do we do wrong in 88? What do we learn in the 27 years we want to add to this? And where do we want this to go now for the future? And we started working and writing. It was as fresh as ever. Um, he definitely still had it. He made these great Emerson parts. My job was to write the song around the parts, the great Emerson stuff. And we had six songs or maybe we had like eight songs going. The last one we never finished. Um, and, and he committed suicide right in the middle of it from other pressures that had nothing to do with the music. I didn't realize it because basically what we were doing was this happy place. He needed the money. He was making money. He loved doing music. We were doing great music. We got along mm. really well. There was no ego problem, you know, and he even said that in interviews for, for a long time. Oh, there was, it was easy. It was a lot of fun touring with Robert and three and Keith and Carl and the three of us just got along great. He liked mm. that because Greg Lake and him butted heads, you know, a lot. Mm. He was so, gone. Yeah. Amazing stuff. So Robert, you mentioned so many icons of rock, progressive rock, you know, all across the whole genre. Yeah. Do you worry about the future of rock and roll? You watch these award shows now, the Grammys and, you know, all the other televised shows. It's not a lot of rock and roll. Right. Uh, and when there is, it might be paying homage to, you know, someone we lost uh, last year. There was a bunch of stuff around sure. little, little Richard's passing. Um, do you worry about the future of rock and roll? You know, Dave Girl's doing a really good job of staying viable. Um, Foo Fighters. Also, I saw them first on Saturday Night Live. I thought they were terrible, but I've reconsidered. A Veta Grand Fleet is a real rock and roll band. They're young. So everything comes around. I, I've been doing it long enough to know that it was, let's see, it was the Stones and the Beatles, then it became sort of Motown, then it became disco, then it became heavy metal. Then it became pop and then it became hip hop, which is disco. Um, then it became, 
doing the rap thing and then I thought rap would go away by now it hasn't that's that's okay it's sort of like opera it's always going to be here you know <laughs> um it, it's there's a cycle and I think it's still a couple of years away but kids always rebel against the music of their parents or the music of the past by doing something different and it's so electronic and so computerized now that the only way to rebel against in the future is maybe folk music gets big. Um, maybe they put rock and the drum machine together, I, whatever it is, it will evolve and it will keep going around that circle. And then it'll be rock again. Then it'll be Motown or hip hop again. You know, it'll keep going around because they don't want to identify with their parents' music or the present music, you, know, you have to move it forward. So something's gonna happen. And I think guitar is bigger than ever. Every kid learns guitar. Every CEO in Silicon Valley has a guitar under his bed. These guys play guitar, you know? A lot of people with this, this brain, you know, these smart brains, they like playing guitar. It won't go away. Yeah, no, it, I, you know, I, I sure hope you're right. And I think, you know, you told it so well, sort of the evolution of American music. And we've spent a lot of time talking with some of the scions, you know, who came out of the church. We had, yeah. uh, I recently had Martha Reeves on. We talked to Darlene Love, who yeah. all started singing in their church choirs. And uh, I guess you sort of hope that, you know, the roots of what it means to us culturally and how important music is to who we are, that that will always be a part of life here in America, and for that matter, everywhere else around the world. Yeah, definitely. And and inspiration comes from all kinds of things. Billie Eilish, now, is your last name Billie Eilish? Irish? Well, Eilish. Um, she got some really cool music that is sort of a dark rock thing, and a little bit hip hop. I mean, it's, it's inspired by a lot of things. I'm trying to think of the girl that did, uh, they tell me to go to rehab, you know, and she died of a heroin overdose or something. But it was yeah. all a throwback kind of thing. She brought it up to be really popular. There's going to be a new Janis Joplin. There's going to be a new Aretha Franklin. Uh, I am not against American Idol and the shows like that because the young kids get exposed to Queen Night on American Idol. My God, really? They're going to sing Queen songs? They're exposed to the music and they like it, right? Right. It's it's all it all comes around it's still all viable it's just that radio is playing only the flavor of the day not so much like that in europe that's an american problem we have a lot of american problems <laughs> we do we do yeah you're right well this was such a joy robert thanks so much for doing this and every continued success and uh I, i'm sure you'll do fine for your wife's wife's birthday tonight and be able oh, to yeah. get, get back in the studio tomorrow yeah, we're going to a fantastic place overlooking San Francisco on the Golden Gate Bridge. Everything's amazing. Couldn't be happier. I, you know, part of the reason that I am so prolific and so happy is I have the right match for me, the right person, because she's always happy. She's a second grade teacher. It makes life a lot better. It doesn't have to be a wife, it could be a friend, it could be your boss, somebody that you resonate with that just, there's no gray cloud going on. And you're that kind of guy. I've, I've talked to you a few I, times now, yeah. you know, you see, you're so into what you do. It's a positive force that bolsters up the whole conversation. And you got me blabbing so much. I can't, I'm going to have to go hit myself with a hammer in the head or something. They're a rubber <laughs> hammer. Uh, you're slowing right, me down. Right. No, no, <laughs> no way. No, there's no slowing you down. Robert, a joy. Thanks so much for doing this. Thanks, man. I'll talk to you soon. Reflection blood on foot. Secrets of my life I hold